Romans 8, 28, very familiar real estate in your Bibles. Paul says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. My friend Brian Hughes tells a really interesting story in his book on Romans 8.28. He says this, quote, An architect and a businessman were having their first meeting in a new building on the top floor of a Chicago skyscraper. During their meeting, a windstorm began to cause the building to swerve back and forth to sway several inches in the wind. The motion felt like several feet to the businessman who was CEO of the company and owned the building. The architect who had designed the building had and had managed its construction noticed the motion but was calm. After a few minutes of watching the businessman go from distracted to concerned to the edge of terrified, the architect said, don't worry, this building is not going to blow down. Your company paid millions of dollars extra so we could construct a building that exceeds every code for both earthquake and wind. The businessman replied, all I really know is how much it cost. You know it's not going to blow down because you designed and built this thing. Right now, my stomach doesn't know anything, end quote. And he headed for the elevator. What's happening here? It's obvious what's going on. The architect had knowledge, had an understanding that the businessman did not about the building. And that knowledge prevented him from... from, Needless worry from anxiety, from fear when the circumstances became threatening. He knew something that changed his perspective in the middle of a terrifying situation. The question that this little parable raises, the question that is asked and answered by the text is what do you know that can give you perspective for when trouble and difficulty come? Do you know if the building's going to hold or if it's going to blow over? Do you know something that will change your perspective for not if, but when difficulties and trial and suffering and turmoil come? We're not talking about buildings blowing down. The question is, do you have a confidence that no matter what happens in your life, no matter what happens to you, that you know it's going to be okay because God loves you Because God's working in your life, and it won't just be okay, it's going to be good. God gives such confidence in Romans 8, 28. I remember Paul's confidence that he expressed that he had learned this lesson. He understood its application. Remember what he told the Philippians, Philippians 1, 6? I am confident, I know of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Is that your assurance? Do you know something about the now and the not yet, the present and the future, the obliteration of sins past? Do you know something? Do you have a cognizant awareness of something that changes your perspective in the present and anticipation of the future? 
How can we come to the point of saying, I am confident that the man, the Lord, the Savior Christ Jesus who began a good work in us will finish it. He's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us until that great day he returns. Well, let's break up and unpack and look at the constituent parts of Romans 8.28. We, we've dissected this and said there are really seven insights Seven insights for living under God's providence. That's why we've break, broken this, this passage down. We've looked at the first two already. I want to briefly summarize those and get into the third uh, uh, part of that perspective. The third insight, even though it's just one word, it is an important word. It is a power-packed word. Remember the first insight is the context of providence. Number one, the context of providence. This is the word and. Day in the Greek means moreover, now, and, in addition to. It's a transition to a new particular of a thought that's already begun. The thought that's already begun is the Spirit comes and helps our weakness in prayer. When we run out of things to pray for, when we don't know how to pray, when we get into a situation where we just come to God with a groan and with a sigh, there's nothing else to explain The Spirit picks up in our weakness. The Spirit picks up when we don't know how to pray as we should. And he intercedes for us according to the will of God. That's the context. What's interesting, though, as we'll see in a moment, is there's a not knowing and a knowing. We do not know how to pray. Verse 26. Verse 28. We know that God does something. So the context of providence is we've run out. When we're at the end, when we, we just don't even, we're in such dire straits in physical condition, in circumstance, even in our soul, that we, we come to a place where we just, don't, we don't even know how to pray. We just come to God and groan. That's the context. Secondly, we looked at the celebrance of Providence. Providence is God's working in our lives. The context is in the midst of difficulty. That's verses 26 and 27. So difficult we don't know how to pray. That's the context. Number two, the celebrants, those who celebrate God's providence, the we. It's that little word, and we, and we. Who are the we? I love verse 31 as a summary. Verse 31 says, the we are those whom God is for and not against. If God is for us, who can be against us? We are the ones who love God and are loved by God. We are the ones who have been saved by God, redeemed by God, who are being sanctified by God. That's the we and we. And it's exclusive. He doesn't say that all things work out together for good for everyone. He says all things work together for good to those who love God, called according to his purpose. That's the we. This isn't a general promise for everyone. As we've said, this is not Doris Day theology that everything will be, will be. This is specifically intended to to inform us that good things are in God's mind no matter what we see underneath a storm between us and heaven. We looked at those two points in great detail over the last two weeks. Now we come to the third insight for living under God's providence. Number three, the confidence of providence. The confidence of providence. The Greek word oida, which means no, is used four times in seven verses. 
This idea of knowing something and of not knowing something is, is very, very prevalent on Paul's mind here. The meaning of know here, this is important, has the implication of we can know. Now I say that because we know that God causes all things to work together for good. That's not an intuitive knowledge that you get when, you, when you're converted to Christ and all of a sudden it's in your brain and you never struggle again. You can translate this, we can know. It's possible to know. There's information available for us. It doesn't mean that we automatically know it without any effort applied to the, to the learning of these things. This knowledge doesn't simply appear in your head when you believe the gospel. We know that God causes, we can know. It's available to know something about God. Now, before we turn to the what of what we know, let's talk for a moment about the source and access to what can be known. I want to illustrate this by going to two passages with which you are very familiar, but maybe looking at it from a little different perspective, a little different angle. Turn back to Genesis chapter 22 for a moment. If you know the book of Genesis, chapter 22 should jump immediately to the forefront of your mind as the great test of Abraham with Isaac. Let's talk about our access to what we know. Genesis 22, verse 1. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, I am testing you. Is that what it says? No, quite the opposite. Abraham is not informed of the test. What is Abraham informed? This is just incredible. Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now And these descriptors are incredible. He could have just said your son. That would have been enough. But look how he piles up these adjectives. He he digs into Abraham's love for his son. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And go to the land of Moriah. And offer him... There as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. You can't read that verse without just pausing. Did did you hear what just happened? Take now your son, your only son, the son you love, The son you had a name for, Isaac. Take Isaac. And don't make an offering. Take Isaac and offer him. When I get to heaven, I want to ask what happened between verse 2 and 3. Because... Abraham rises early the next morning. What a night that must have been. Saddled his donkey, 
took two of his young men with him, Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. He took wood, I think, so that if he got to a place, it was high on a mountain, there's typically not wood up there, then, then he, would, he wouldn't have an excuse on the third day, he has three days to think about this. Three days to turn back. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there. Don't miss this. And we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his, on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. And he starts doing the calculus on this, this situation. Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. They came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built the altar, then arranged the wood. And tied his son up, bound his son, Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. The writer to the Hebrews informs us that there was something else going on in Abraham's mind. Remember what, what that was? He believed that he was going to kill Isaac and that God was going to raise him from the dead. Which is why he told his friends, we will go and worship and we will return. You know what happens. There's a ram in the thicket stuck and it's the sacrifice instead of Isaac. Now, wh why read that? Because Abraham did all of this with no idea what God was doing. He didn't know, verse 1, that God tested him. He just knew obedience. Turn over to Job. Job chapter 1. These are important to see because of the contrast between what they did not know and how they responded and what we do know and can respond. You know Job very, very well. You know the story. Verse 6. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. 
The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Who brings Job up in this conversation? God does. For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and his house so that and all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. And surely he will curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power only. Do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, they're all having a family reunion, maybe a birthday party, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. One of the most significant phrases in this chapter is this next one. While he was still speaking. This first bearer of bad news is telling the bad news. He can't even finish his sentence before another one interrupts him. Another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking... Here comes number three. Another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, and a raid came on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, a fourth messenger comes and said, and I just imagine Job's wife hearing these words, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners. This would have been a tornadic event. Hit all four corners, not from one direction of the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job rose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Chapter 2, it gets worse. His health goes south and he's afflicted with boils from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. He can't even walk on his feet. Why tell those two stories? These are just two of many in the Old Testament. Because Job and Abraham experienced the most severe of any trial I can imagine. But they did not know that God was testing Abraham. 
Job did not know there was this conversation that had happened between God and Satan in heaven. They did not know this, but they responded well. Distinct from Abraham and distinct from Job's experience, we, in fact, do know what God is doing. This is a massive difference. We are in a much more privileged position than Abraham was, than Job was. You understand that? They just responded. They just were obedient. They didn't sin with their lips, Job says. And, and yet we, we know something they didn't know. Now just for a moment, turn over to James chapter 1. A parallel passage to Romans eight twenty eight. James chapter 1. You know it very well. But I want to show you a word that I hope circled in your soul, if not on your Bible. James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. What's the next word? Knowing. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Do you see the difference between that and Abraham? We know what God is doing when a difficulty comes, when a circumstance that we don't desire comes. We can know that this is a part of God's testing. When trials come, James says, this is a part of God's testing and you can know that knowing, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now let's go back to Romans. We highlighted this several months ago. I want to remind you of it. Because this is so important in Paul's theology. This is so important in the practical application of this passage. In Romans chapter 5. I mean, this, every time I, I go back to this passage, I, I'm just shocked at, at, the, at the, the connection here. Um, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There's a summary of the first four chapters. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult, we rejoice, we overwhelmingly are excited in the hope of the glory of God. Isn't that great? We're overwhelmingly hopeful, excited, exulting, the you and not the a, not exalt, exulting. We're exulting, we're rejoicing in the hope of glory. We know we're going to heaven. That's a great thing. And then verse And not only this, not only are we excited and rejoice in the hope of heaven, swallow hard, gulp, we also rejoice and exult. Does it really say what I think it says? In our tribulations? How can we exult and rejoice in difficulty? What's the next word? Knowing That tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character. Proven character, hope. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Do you see what's going on here? We have what Job and Abraham didn't have. They did not know what God was doing. We know what God is doing and that God is doing something. Listen, you lose that And you have no better perspective than an unbeliever when when difficulty comes. If you know what you're supposed to know. Back to Romans 8, 28. 
And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Do you know that? By the way, if you trace the, the no all the way through, um, through Romans as possible, you don't have to do this, but just, just for a moment, listen. Um, if you go all the way back, uh, chapter 3, verse 19, we know that what the law says, uh, knowing in chapter 5, um, chapter 6, do you not know, verse 3, verse 6, knowing this, verse 9, knowing that Christ, verse 16, do you not know, chapter 7, do you not know, verse 1, um, uh, in our own context, verse 22, we know that the whole creation, creation groans, you can keep going, uh, uh, for not knowing, chapter 10, verse 3, not knowing about God's righteousness. We should know about God's righteousness. Chapter 11, verse 2, do you not know? Um, we could go on and on. Uh, chapter 14, verse 14, I know and I'm convinced. Paul says, do you know? Now, this doesn't mean that you're given all this special knowledge when you believe Christ and now your brain is exploding with everything that's new and, and perspective. What it means is we can know. What it also means is he expects us to know. How can we know? God's word provides us with what we need to know. God's word provides us with what we need to know. Second Peter chapter one, you know this passage. Anchor it in this Romans eight twenty eight passage. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. In the knowledge of God, grace and peace be multiplied to you. How? In the knowledge, in something you know, the knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. How has he given us everything we need for life and godliness? Which would include difficulties and trials. He's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Do you have the knowledge? I mean, that's the question that this, this, this passage begs us to answer. And we know that God causes all things. Do you know? That word know can also be translated and we believe and we are convinced of. Do you believe that God is causing all things to work together for good? To you because you love God. To you because you're called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? Do you know that? Listen, all of us can become spiritual whiners. And it typically comes off like this. Well, it's a little bit Eeyore-ish. Nobody knows how bad it is for me. It was my upbringing. My mom, my dad. I had a cat instead of a dog. That was where it went south. Uh, you can trace it all the way back and, and you, woe is me. And I, I've probably heard, I've probably said before, I know what the Bible says. But, do you have that word in your theological vocabulary? Well, I know Romans 8 says that, but you don't understand my plight. There's no footnote in Romans 8, 28. And we can know and we can believe and we can be convinced that God causes all things to work together for good. How many times have we talked about this? And I don't want to belabor it, 
But it's the way I live my life. It's the way I counsel myself multiple times a day. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? Do you get to the what you know? How is your anxiety level? Paul didn't give us much wiggle room. Be anxious for, what was it? I'm sorry, I can't hear Be anxious for nothing, but in how many things? All things by prayer and supplication make your request known to God. Paul takes away the anxiety excuse. He takes away the anxiety option. What do I feel? Anxious. What do I think? Well, because I'm anxious, I think bad thoughts, and I don't, I don't think that, that, that God's word is true, and I don't think this situation can be resolved, and I think this is bad. What do I know? Hang on. What do I know? If I can get to what I know, then I back up. Look at just some of the things we, we've, we've looked at. We know that God is testing our faith. We know that God is doing all things for our good. We know that God is building up. We know that there's a process of sanctification working on behind where uh, faith and perseverance and hope and endurance all work together for our, our sanctification, our holiness, and our good. We know that God is doing something. Or, or do we know that? Can I ask a different way? Do we believe that? This is the read your Bible more sermon. How can you know if you don't read? Answer, drum roll, you can't. You won't. So what... I mean, I feel like we're in the fourth grade Sunday school class again. Are you reading God's word every day? Are you filling your mind full of things that you know, that you believe, that you become convinced of? What do we get out of Bible study and reading and study? What do we get out of that? Can I just give you a little list? We get confidence. That's really our, 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 what we're looking at this morning. We had confidence that God is doing something that we, we may not see. He has an invisible hand in the glove of providence and he's working things out. We get insight. We know, okay, okay, this isn't it. This isn't the end. No matter how bad it gets here, there is a there. Perspective. We get Perspective. Motivation, correction. When we read God's, God's word, we get understanding and, and assurance. We get peace, we get joy. And most importantly, we get the knowledge of the heart of a great God and Savior who has for us his good in mind in all that happens. Verse 31, if God is for us, How's it finish? Who can be against us? And he goes bigger than who in the last, last part of the chapter. He says what can be against us. There's nothing that can be against us. We can know that God is doing something in and behind our trials and that he is doing something for our good. Thomas Watson, he wrote this. The spirit of God imprints heavenly truths upon the heart as with the point of a diamond. A Christian may know infallibly that there is an evil in sin and a beauty in holiness. We can know. So this insight, this point, this word in our series, 
is about confidence. So what are you doing to inform and equip your mind, equip your mind and heart with biblical truth that can sustain you not if but when trials come? We started this series by looking at Horatius Spafford. Verse 2 of it as well. Though Satan should buffet, though, what does it say? Trials should come. Listen, let this blessed assurance control. Control who? Yourself. What blessed assurance can control our thinking? That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You believe that? Will you believe that? What do you know? What do you know? What are you convinced of? Find yourself in a difficulty with pervasive anxiety and you've just found yourself in a place of not knowing and being convinced of what's true about God behind the curtain, inside the glove. And it's all, as we're gonna see, as we're gonna see, it's all good. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads for a moment. We're gonna come to the Lord's table Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, 1, for we know, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We know that no matter, no, no matter how bad it gets here, heaven awaits. And that should be a sweet, motivating, peace-inducing reality. But can I just tell you, can I just beg you, if you don't know Christ you cannot have that blessed assurance. Please, please, please understand what's available in Christ. That Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. Do you know the gospel? Do you believe the gospel? Do you preach the gospel to your own heart? What we're about to do is... Um, is a, is a memorial. It's a celebration. It's a, it, I don't want it to be a weird moment or an awkward moment. We're, here, here's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to pass around a piece of bread. And then afterwards, we're going to pass around a little cup with juice in it. This represents the body and the blood of Christ. And Jesus told us to do this. And he told us to do it with an examined heart and an examined life. He told us to do this to remember him. He told us that this is something that we do because we love Christ, because we're repentant, because we're leaning on him, because we're trying to know and be convinced of what the Bible tells us that God is doing. If you're a baptized believer and you are in good standing with another church and you're visiting with us, we'd love for you to share in this with us. And if... If you're in a position of repentance, 
and sorrow over your sin. This, this table is not for the perfect. It's for those who are imperfect and know it. Then it's for you.